The birth narrative is in chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to look at part of chapter 1, and we're going to be then looking at a sprinkling of verses through the rest of chapters 1 and 2. Last year, we focused on Matthew, and now we're going to look at Luke's account. So we're in Luke chapter 1, we're going to read together verse 26 up to verse 38. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. When we think about philosophies, big ideas that have influenced our world, they're often associated with somebody's name, like Platonism associated with Plato, or Aristotelianism associated with Aristotle, or whatever it might be. But uh, their lives are not so important. It's their ideas. If we find out something about Plato's life, that's sort of an added detail that's kind of interesting, or Aristotle's life, or whatever philosopher it might be. It's really about their ideas, not about their lives. And some religions are like that as well. Uh, It had a founder at some point, but it's really more about ideas uh, than about the lives of the founders. However, when we come to the Bible, we find something distinct. If you look at the Old Testament, it is at least half history. Uh, It is uh, shot through with the history of the world and then with the history of a people, uh, with suggestions about the rest of the world as well and what's going on there. And then we get to the New Testament, and it's even more obvious, because in the arrangement we have of our New Testaments, the first five books are history books, and that makes up most of the New Testament. It is a history Uh, It is a story of what has happened in a certain place, in certain time, and with identifiable people. So it's very earthy. It it, it touches where we live. These were about people that walked and lived and died on our planet. Uh, And so it's very close to us. And it also makes Christianity uh, something that can't be scientifically verified, But we can do historical investigation and ask the question, if it's saying these things happened, 
Uh, do we have evidence that they actually happen? And we can go back and look and investigate to see if these things actually happen. Different from ideas. If you just throw out an idea, it's not historically verifiable, but Christianity is different. And so what we're going to do with Christianity, and by, by the way, when we think about the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is a declaration of something that happened. Uh, it is a declaration of events that happened. That's the story. And so what we're going to do in these two weeks, we're going to break it into two different sections. Today we're going to look at the who, the where, and the what of the gospel story. And then next week we're going to get to the why question. So today we're going to look at the facts, and then we're going to ask the question and answer it, why did these things happen, and why were they necessary to happen? So first we'll look at the who. Who are the characters in this story? And if you look at verses 26 and 27, we have the introduction to the main characters. And the first main character is an angel named Gabriel. Now, there are only two good angels. If we want to throw in the bad angels, we have some of them named, but there are only two good angels named in the Bible. One is Gabriel, and the other is, anybody know? Michael, Michael exactly. And they both appear in the Old Testament in the same book. They appear in the book of Daniel. And here we have them, uh, in the New Testament, we have Gabriel appearing for the second time. And Gabriel has already appeared. We didn't read it, but Gabriel has already appeared once. And there are these two parallel accounts of Gabriel showing up. First of all, he showed up to a man named Zechariah. Now, these accounts are similar accounts. He shows up to somebody. He announces a miraculous birth that is about to take place. And then there's something of an objection or a question, and then he gives an answer, and then he leaves. So the the accounts are parallel, but what's even more interesting than the parallelism of these two accounts is the contrast. And this is something that Luke likes to do. Now think about this. He came to Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? Zechariah was a priest, and it was his turn to go into the temple to offer the sacrifice and the incense. And so he was in the temple, which was the most important place in Judaism, the most important place in Israel, and he was in the second most important room of that most important place. He was in the holy place. There were uh, the courtyard, then there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. That was the most important place. And he was a high-status individual. One, he was a man. In those days, that gave him a higher status. He was older. That gave him a higher status. He was from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother, and that gave him a high status. He was a priest. So he was a high-status individual and the angel Gabriel goes to the high-status individual and announces that he and his wife are going to have a son. Now, his wife was older as well. Her name was Elizabeth. She was beyond childbearing years. And so when he receives this message, he asks a question, and the way it comes across is something like a challenge. And that seems to be how Gabriel takes the challenge. He says, how can I know that this will be? Because I'm old and my wife is old. And Gabriel kind of pulls rank on him, And he says, I'm Gabriel, and I stand before God. And because you didn't believe my word, you are going to be mute until this child is born. And he also told him that the child would be named John. Later in this birth narrative, this child is born. It's the one we call John the Baptist. Okay, So Gabriel comes, high-status individual, a challenge there, and then something of a rebuke and a discipline for his unbelief. 
Now we get to our text. Gabriel comes again. And it says, He was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now we have taken a huge step down. We were just in Jerusalem. We were just in capital city. And we were not only in capital city, where were we? We were in the temple. And we were not just in the temple. We were in the holy place with a high status individual. And now we are in Galilee. Now Galilee was up in the north. And the folks in the south, in Judea, considered Galilee kind of rustic. uh, Kind of in the sticks, out there. Uh, Those Galileans, and they had a funny accent uh, in terms of what the Judeans thought. And so he goes to an unimportant town in a less important province, and it says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So this is a, a, a young lady, a virgin. It says twice he calls her a virgin, and she's still living at home. But it's interesting, he doesn't mention her parents. She's living at home. But Gabriel or Luke doesn't tell us who her parents were. So she, she appears almost like an orphan. She's, she's unnamed at the beginning of this verse. Her parents are unnamed at the beginning of the, or well, throughout it. We don't know about her parentage. And then it says, and the virgin's name was Mary. So she was a low status individual. She was a woman, which gave her lower status in the, those days. She was from a, a small town in the north, low status, and she was still living at home. Her only claim to fame was that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. So her only attachment to status was Joseph, because it says Joseph, what does it tell us about him? Of what house was he? He was the house of David. So her only claim to status was kind of vicarious. It was borrowed status. And her name was Mary. But Luke does does something very clever here. Luke was a a physician, well-educated. He writes with exalted language, a very, very elevated Greek. And he does something interesting here. He calls Mary, Miriam. Miriam. Now, in most of the New Testament, she is called Marias. But he uses a different variation of her name. Miriam. Have you ever heard a name like that? Okay, if you go back to the Old Testament... The sister of Aaron and Moses was, we call her Miriam, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament, her name is Miriam. And so Luke is doing something very subtle and very clever here. So he's saying she might not have impressive parentage, she might not have an impressive uh, home state or home city, but we're going to give her this exalted name of a famous person in the Old Testament. We're going to use that variation. And what does Gabriel say? He goes to this individual, and he uh, he goes and he says, in verse 28, he says, Greetings, O favored one. Now, greetings is a common greeting of those days. It could also mean rejoice. Some versions will have it rejoice. And he calls her, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this uh, this verse, O favored one, O graced one, It's very clear, the way this is written, that she was passive in this. That she was the one who received favor. She was the one who received grace. She had been favored. Now, unfortunately, in later translations, and then in the Latin prayer uh, called Ave Maria, you've probably heard of Ave Maria, it translates it differently, and it says, Mary, hail Mary, full of grace. 
And then that Latin prayer goes on to treat Mary as the source of grace rather than as the recipient of grace. So it, it turns it around. But here it's very clear that she was the one who was graced, that she had been favored by God. And, and Gabriel will, will clarify that later. And then he says to her, the Lord is with you. Now this is an interesting thing as well. Because if you go back in the Old Testament, and here Luke is doing something very subtle and clever, if you go back in the Old Testament, you will find that is a greeting that people like Gideon received. David received that greeting. Another king of Judah received that greeting. So this is a very exalted greeting. This is a greeting for a noble person to this young virgin from Galilee. And so she was obviously, she was obviously taken aback by this kind of a greeting. It was way too exalted for a person like her of such low status. And it says in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You can't blame her, can you? It it was too much for her. And then Gabriel explained, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. And here he clarifies, for you have found favor with God. You have received favor from God. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. That's how angels always speak when they show up to humans. Have you noticed that throughout Scripture? The first thing they say is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So they did not look like those little rotund creatures that we have in our, our snow babies and our, our, our little uh, displays at Christmas time. They were awesome creatures. And uh, she, he said, like they say to everyone, do not be afraid. And then he says, you've had favor with God. And then he gives her this announcement. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, we already know that she's a virgin, that she's betrothed. And by the way, betrothal was, was a bigger deal than our engagement. Because you hear about people that they broke their engagement and we say, oh, bummer, that's too bad. But they go on and they get engaged to somebody else or they don't, whatever. But it's, it's, it's a commitment, but it's not a legal commitment. In this day, it was a legal binding commitment broken only by divorce. All of the responsibility, but none of the privileges yet because they didn't live together. They lived with their parents still. So uh, she was betrothed. She wasn't living with a man yet, and she was to have a child, and they were to call his name Jesus. Now, this description, look at how Gabriel describes the son named Jesus who would be born. Verse 32, he will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So he'll be great, he'll have uh, the throne of David, and he will reign forever. This is bringing together some scriptures from the Old Testament. If we go back and look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 on page 287, or it's up here for you, uh, this is a promise that God gave to David. Chapter 7 verse 9 says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a, what kind of a name? A great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So uh, Gabriel says that the name of this son born to Mary will be a great name. And then if you go down to verse 12, 
uh, we have the further promise, when your days are fulfilled, this is to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long? Forever. Forever. And then there's another prophecy in Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and Luke is drawing on this as well. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Luke is pulling these things together in this account about Gabriel. The promise to David and this prophecy about a kingdom that would not only be a kingdom over Israel, but a universal kingdom over all the nations. Now, you can imagine that this was overwhelming for Mary. And so Mary responds, even as as Zechariah had responded with a question. But look at her response, her question, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? And she emphasized this the third time in the text, since I am a virgin. How will this be? How can I get pregnant if I am a virgin? Now, if you compare her question to Zechariah's question, you see the contrast. Because Zechariah presented it more like a challenge. And she's not challenging that this is going to be, is it? She's not doubting that this is going to take place. She's just saying, I'm not understanding how this is to happen because I'm a virgin. And the answer that the angel Gabriel gave her is very tactful, and it's lacking in details, but listen to how it goes. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This explanation Once again, Luke is drawing on something very subtle here. He uses this verb, will overshadow you. The Most High will overshadow you. This is a verb that shows up in the Greek version of the Old Testament at the end of Exodus when they built the tabernacle and they're waiting for something to happen. And in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This verb settled is the same verb in Greek. It's overshadowed. And so Luke is drawing on these references from the Old Testament to say that something like that is going to happen where the the glory of the Lord will overshadow you, will take over this situation. And that explains... Not in detail. We, we can't understand the details biologically of how this worked, but, but we can understand how this will result in a boy who is born who is at the same time the son of Mary and the son of God. Uh, this, um, this explanation was more than sufficient for Mary And then, uh, actually, he adds one more thing before Mary's response in verse 37. He says, For nothing will be impossible with God. Once again, Luke is drawing on this uh, something from the Old Testament, and that goes back to Genesis chapter 18. Do you remember uh, Sarah and Abraham? Another old couple, uh, like Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And Sarah hears that she's going to have a child, and what does she do? (coughs) 
She laughs because this is hilarious. She's uh, she's 80 years old when she first well 75 when the whole thing starts, and she's 90 when the child is finally born. And then here's the answer: Is anything too hard for the Lord? And this is the same uh, expression here that Gabriel gives to Mary: Nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary's response, and this is a classic response, a response that we would all do well to emulate. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. An amazing statement of submission to God's will, which seemed like an outrageous sort of thing that God was going to do, an extraordinary thing that was going, He was going to do, and a costly thing for Mary, for a virgin to conceive, was a costly thing for her. But her response was, May this be according to your will. And then it says, The angel departed from her. What I would like to do is then now go rapidly through a sprinkling of verses with you because the rest of this birth narrative, which takes up these two chapters, has more information about who Mary's son would be. So let's look a few of these verses. In, uh, if we go back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, here the, uh, Gabriel is speaking and it says, And he, this is John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the, uh, to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is going to go before whom? The Lord. The Lord. And then we find in chapter 3 that John goes before whom? Jesus. And so put two and two together, and this is saying that Jesus is the Lord. And that's borne out, uh, if you look at verse 43 of chapter 1, Mary goes to greet her relative Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant. And then in verse, I'm sorry, 43, it says, uh, Elizabeth is speaking, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth recognized that Mary's baby was her Lord. Then if you look also at verse uh, 76, here Zechariah is uh, prophesying. And he says, And you, child, speaking of his son, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then, if we look at chapter 2, the angel appears to the shepherds. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, this is his announcement, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Then if you look down, there was an old man named Simeon, and he was waiting to see the Messiah come, and he had received a promise that he wouldn't die until the Messiah came. And in verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or the Lord's Messiah. And then if we keep reading, verse 29 of chapter 2, he prays and he says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So far, so good. What have we learned about this child? That he's the son of Mary, that he's the son of God, that he is the Lord, which means God himself, that he is a savior, that he is the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one that He is set for salvation, not only for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. So far, so good. But there's one more thing that is prophesied. And that is if we look at chapter 2, verses 33 and uh, to 35. And His father and His mother 
Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's suddenly a change of tone, isn't there? All all of a sudden, things got ominous. All through this birth narrative, it's all about greatness and about reigning and about dominion and about light and about salvation and about bringing people back together. And all of a sudden, there is this, this ominous prophecy to Mary and Joseph, particularly to Mary, saying, you will be riven through by what happens to your son because your son will be a sign to be opposed. So what do we have here? We have here from the outset at the very beginning of this announcement of of who this Savior would be, of who this Son would be, we have a shadow, a pall that is cast upon even this birth narrative that something is going to go apparently wrong, that, that it's not going to be smooth sailing all along, that there will be opposition and pain and death. And so we will be looking at this more next week, but already we see that the shadow of the cross is, is cast over the cradle. Already we see this, this suggestion of, of Jesus' death, which is brought into this narrative about His birth. And if we ask the why question, already we have a little bit of an answer, although we'll look at that more extensively next week. If you look at verse 77 of chapter 1 in Zechariah's song, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. In the forgiveness of their sins. So already in the birth narrative, what do we have? We have one who was born, who is man, who is God, who is God Himself, who is the Savior, who is Christ, who is the Messiah, who is assigned to be opposed, who will bring grief to His mother, who will die, and now we find out why He would die. He would die for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, this message of God becoming a man in order to die is an extraordinary claim. Sometimes I think about this and I take a step back I've heard it so many times and I try to remember how that claim struck me when I first heard it. And I can't remember because I've heard it so many times and now I've believed it for so long, it seems like a normal sort of thing. But when we step back, we realize how extraordinary that is. That there was one who was born who is actually God in the flesh. Maybe you've heard that so many times that it no longer strikes you as, as extraordinary, or maybe it still strikes you as literally unbelievable, something that, that can't be. But this is the message of Christianity. This is how it begins, that God has become one of us. And because it is a historical claim, it is a claim that God, through His Word, is calling on us to believe in order to have the benefits thereof, the first of which is the forgiveness of our sins. Have you ever been in a city 
usually it's some sort of crowded place, maybe a festival, where there was a street preacher on the corner. You ever seen any of those? I have seen those. And I stop by and I try to listen to what they're saying. And usually they are announcing the end of the world or they are calling down a judgment and the wrath of God on, on the happy uh, vacationers who are walking by. Um, I don't want to say that I was one of those, but I did practice street preaching when I was in seminary. And when people ask me, how did you learn to preach? I have two answers. One is, I'm still learning to preach, as you all well know. And the second is, on the corner of Broad and Olney in Philadelphia. Because we, we seminarians would try to screw up our courage. We'd go to this, this transit stop where the subway and the buses and the trolley all came together. We'd have two or three minutes to give a little, little sermonette. And then we'd have other people with the crowd. And they would turn. And this is where the real action was. It wasn't so much the sermon. It was we'd turn to the person next to us and say, what did you think about what he just said? And sometimes we'd strike up some interesting conversations. And I remember one time, a woman came up to me, and she said, there's a lot of suffering in the world. And you're talking about God's love. Does God really care about us with all the suffering in the world? And aha, I had studied that in seminary. The problem of evil, right? And I was kind of going through my mind of what kind of a clever response I could give this lady. Uh, a defense of God uh, before the problem of evil. But I didn't have much time. So the only thing I told her was this. God does care. And the reason we know He cares is because He came. He came to be one of us. And He came to suffer. And He came to die. He does care for us. And she said, okay, thank you. That's what I wanted to know. And that's what we all want to know, isn't it? That's what we all want to know when we look around our world. That's what we all want to know when we look at our lives. When we look at the pain and the the death and the sorrow and the tears in our world. And when we, when we have those same things in our life, we have that same question. Does, does God care? And the answer is, and this is an answer that will never change, yes, we know He cares. And how do we know He cares? Because He came. One of the things I do as a pastor is just show up. Often I have no idea what to do, especially when there's overwhelming sorrow and grief. But the only thing I do is I show up. And I often feel impotent. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And so oftentimes I don't say anything. I just am there. And it's amazing how days later or weeks later or months later, the person says to me, you don't know how much you helped me because you were there. But there's a big difference between just showing up and doing something about it. And so, what God did was even better. He not only showed up, but He did something about it. He entered into our pain. He entered into our sorrow. He entered into our grief. He entered into our death. And then He rose from the dead. 
And the way we celebrate these things in the Christian calendar, we separate them, don't we? We celebrate the birth one date, and we celebrate the death another date, and then we celebrate the resurrection another date, but these all go together. This is what God did. This is the history. This is the story that He calls upon us to believe that we might enter into its privileges and into its joys. What did He do? How do we know that He loves us? He came. He came. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that You have come. What an amazing message that is, that You came. And You didn't keep us at an arm's length. You came and became one of us. And You entered into what we experience, everything we experience except sin. And then You took upon Yourself our sin that we might have the forgiveness thereof. We pray, O God, that You would remind us once again that You do love us and that You would send us out from this place to often hurting and sorrowing people that we would be able to say, yes, our God does care and we know that because He came. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.